Hello, a little word of warning that this podcast contains swears and use of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18. Or anyone who thinks an exhibitionist can only be found in museums. I'm ahead of the game. Welcome back to the Smut Drop. This is your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane, and on this week's show, I'll be looking at how to sext your deepest fantasies, talking about making gay history with Eric Marcus, and seeing what you said when I asked our fabulous listeners for their kinkiest treasure finds. If you like what you hear, then please rate, review, or at least subscribe. And I hope you're ready, because I'm about to turn on my keystrokes. Hello, 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 dearest listener. Okay, quick question. Are you any good at sexting? Sexting! (laughs) I know I haven't heard that term in a while. I thought it was all video calls and voice notes now, but no, I have been out of the flirting game for too long. So I am very grateful to Metro for finding some fabulous sexting tips from Bloom's audio porn scriptwriter, Jess Buey. And when it comes to sexting, hitting the tone is an art form. You need to hit it just right. According to Jess, it's all about knowing what gets your partner going, what fantasies to tap into and keeping those naughty messages coming until you do. Am I right? Hey! (laughs) So according to Bloom's data, it's all about threesomes, domination and public sex. Ah, those are the things that are going to suck up you and your data. But of course, you have to remember that there are rules. Let's keep everything safe, sane and consensual, my little babies. It is so important to remember not to jump into these things too quickly. Jess reminds us all that consent is still important, even when you're sexting and even when it's fantasies. Start by sending one spicy test just to check the waters and to ensure that whoever you're texting seems to be okay with the direction the conversation is going. It's always important to check you're texting the right person before hitting that send button as well. Oh my God, can you imagine? (laughs) You send it to dad when it should have been done. Oh my God. God. And it's also okay to say that you're not enjoying this. You can say no, you're not there just to be part of someone's sexting fantasies. So Jess says that some of the most popular sexting topics are, of course, threesomes, domination and voyeurism. (laughs) Now, you, my little avid listener, definitely know all about threesomes and domination. But voyeurism, I was quite surprised by that. But yeah, getting down and dirty in public, whether you're watching or whether you're an exhibitionist and, you know, just doing it has become super popular. What do you think? Maybe being locked inside has awoken our primal nature and we all want to start fucking in fields. I'm all for it. 
Um, as well as what topics are adding spice to our sex lives, there are also some great tips. So saying things like, oh, tell me more and keep going. Those are great phrases for keeping the conversation flowing if you can't think of a raunchy response in the moment. And it's also good for those who might not be very confident in your sexting. It lets the sender know that you're definitely interested, but it also allows them to set the tone and boundaries for the conversation. And look, sending stuff like tell me more and and keep going just to keep the conversation good is always good because you don't want to leave them on red. This is a pinnacle time for someone. I would also add that asking open questions are also good to know what turns your partner on. So, uh, for instance, saying, oh, what do you want me to do to your nipples is much better than saying, do you want me to pinch your nipples and just getting a yes and no answer. But for anyone who wants more great tips and information on how you can be your best sexting self, head over to the article, How to Sext Your Deepest Fantasies According to Professional Audio Porn Writers over at metro.co.uk. But obviously not before my fabulous chat with this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this Pride Month we're honouring its history by celebrating the archivists and gorgeous queer history nerds that are keeping voices of the past alive for future generations. Making Gay History does exactly what it says on the tin. They're bringing LGBTQ civil rights history to life through the voices of the people who lived it by creating podcasts, documentaries, events and developing inclusive educational resources. So I'm delighted Delighted to welcome journalist, storyteller, founder, and host of Making Gay History, Eric Marcus. Hello, Eric. Hello. That that is indeed me. I guess I do all of those things. I just that is indeed I. I am that person. Um, so glad to be with you today. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I am so fascinated with people who find archives of all these people's voices and all these interviews in the most randomest of places. So you (laughs) started making gay history because you found a hundred like tapes of interviews that you'd made with queer people in the eighties. Is that right? Yes. Um, I can take no credit for any of this except for doing the interviews. I was commissioned to write an oral history book in 1988 by what was then called Harper and Rowe, now Harper Collins. And I accepted the project because I found out that at CBS News, where I was working at the time, uh, that they would not put an openly gay person on camera, which is where I wanted to go with my career. Yeah. Because there was nobody out on uh, on national network news or on cable news. So that was the end of, of my career path at CBS. And at the same time, I had an offer from Harper and Rowe to write a proposal for this book. So I set out to interview lots of people who were involved in some way in what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement. And for the two editions of that book, I interviewed more than 100 people using broadcast quality equipment. I thought to ask my boss at CBS, who had created uh, National Public Radio's weekend edition and morning edition, what do your colleagues use? Because I figured someday some scholar would want to dig up my archive and do some audio documentary or something. There were, of course, no podcasts. And I had no idea that many years later, in 2015, I would begin mining my own archive for the Making Gay History podcast. 
Did you find them on purpose? Did you remember that they were there or was it just something you were clearing out your garage and you were like, oh, look, there they are? No. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> you wouldn't be the first who did that, let me tell you. No, no, no. I am more than a little obsessive compulsive and I kept <laughs> track of my tapes. I had two full sets of the tapes that I kept in different locations in case there was a fire or an earthquake or a oh, volcano. Oh, I love that. Well done. One point I... I had a set in San Francisco, California, and a set in New York City. Wow. Yeah. And then in 2008, when I decided I was done with my gay work, because I have my own internal home, internalized homophobia issues, so I never considered my gay work as good as my straight mainstream work. Wow. So I decided I was done with my gay work. I turned over my collection to the New York Public Library, which is a huge institution here in New York, with an agreement that they digitize my collection. So I knew it was there. Um, they had taken their time to digitize the collection, and when I happened to be fired from my job in 2015. So it was 2015. I read a wonderful book by one of my favorite journalists, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, a book called Life Reimagined. And one of the things that she says you need to do is look at your assets. What do you got mm. as you're figuring out what to do next? Because I was 55 years old. I was a journalist and nobody, nobody is hiring a 55 year old journalist. Um, so I called the New York Public Library and said, have you digitized my collection? And they had. They had just finished. Mm. So I did the second thing that Barbara Bradley Haggerty said. Talk to lots of people about what you might do, um, building on your experience. And my experience was as a storyteller, as a journalist. And what we came up with was a small education project using short excerpts from my, uh, from my archive to anchor lesson plans in American history, um, LGBTQ history. Long, long story short, it morphed into a podcast project. We had an angel producer, uh, Jenna Weiss Berman, a lesbian, who was a co-founder of Pineapple Street Studios, coincidentally, <laughs> in New York. Yes. And she loved, what, she loved the audio and said, uh, what, what can I do to help? And we launched the podcast, not knowing, and I had a grant to do this, not knowing that we would go beyond the first 10 episodes. And we've now produced 12 seasons. We're just wrapping up season 12. Um, over the past six years, we've had 5.5 million episode downloads in 220 countries and territories around the world. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. That's so fun. What do you think is drawing people to it? I know what's drawing people to it. It's what, what, what draws me to it. It's the actual voices of the people I interviewed. Mm. So the oral history book did quite well. History books don't usually sell much. And we sold probably 35,000 copies of the book in hardcover paperback over the two editions. But reading someone's words is mm. so different from hearing someone's words in your head because most people listen with earbuds. So it's as if the person is talking to you right in the middle of your, of your head, mm. of your brain. So I can listen and hear people who founded the movement here in the US in 1950. I can hear Wendell Sayers tell a story about being sent to a major hospital in 1919 when he was 16 years old. Uh, to be diagnosed as a homosexual. Mm. So these stories really come to life through the audio. And we also, we're, we're very serious about it. We do a, a professional grade podcast. You started talking to people in 1988. That's a fairly pinnacle time for the lesbian and gay rights community, for the civil rights yes. movement. It was the AIDS pandemic. It was HIV. It was everything was going on in the 80s. So what were some of the things that were were standing out to you then and has it changed when you listen back a lot of what we've seen come to fruition come to pass 
um, were things we were already talking about. Marriage equality, um, gay and lesbian people or LGBTQ people being allowed to serve in the military here in the U.S., serve mm-hmm. openly. Um, school teachers being able to uh, to teach people who are LGBTQ. They were already doing so, but to do so openly. So the issues that we were talking about were in some ways very similar to what we're talking about now, trying here in the U.S., trying to get a national uh, anti-discrimination law passed. But the focus really was on AIDS at the time. Mm. It was it was such a terrible time. For me personally, I had friends who were dying uh, left and right. And mm. in fact, when I signed the contract for the book, I hadn't yet, hadn't yet been tested. So I didn't know if I would live or die. I knew I'd been exposed in 1981 and just assumed that I was positive. We were advised that once the test became available in 1985, that it was not a great idea to get tested because if you knew you were going to die, it could further suppress your immune system because it was a death sentence then. Wow. So I waited, my then partner and I waited until there was a treatment, AZT, which was not so terribly effective, but it was the only thing anyone had. It was, it was proven effective in 1988, and that's when we went to get tested. But I signed the contract with Harper and Rowe, and I remember thinking, please, God, and I don't believe in God, but I thought, please, God, let me stay alive long enough to do this book. So I got tested in early November of 1988. We had my 30th birthday party, it took three weeks to get the results, and much to my surprise and my partner's surprise, we were both uh, negative. So, um, but I made a list when I set out to, uh, to start work on the book of the men I knew who were ill, who I wanted to interview, who were almost certainly going to die. Wow. So, yeah. So there was a, and also there were a lot of elderly people around who had been around at the beginning of the movement and they were also not going to be around forever. So for me, it felt like I was really racing against the clock. Is there anything that you would want to ask them now that you're now you're older and you've got the podcast and other people are hearing it <laughs> and times have changed, you know, well, we'd like to think. The oh, my changed. God. Yes. Yes, there are. <laughs> so one of my absolute favorites is Edith Ide, who went by the um, pseudonym Lisa Ben. And if you play word games, you'll know what those letters spell. Want to guess? Lisa Ben. No, you're going to have to help me out. Lesbian. So- lesbian. Oh! Terrible, and oh, that's like an anagram that was staring me in the face. <laughs> I put, I, I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, Edith Ide worked for RKO Radio Pictures in Hollywood in 1947 as a secretary. Her boss told her that he wasn't always going to be able to keep her busy, so she, sh- but he didn't want her to knit or read. So, okay, let's say you're a lesbian in 1947. Mm-hmm. And there are no gay rights organizations. There's no gay rights, anything. Um, and if you were found out for being gay, you'd likely lose your job. You could be evicted from home. Your your family could reject you. So Edith decided to publish what she called a magazine for lesbians called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine, on her typewriter. <laughs> she used five sheets of carbon paper, typed it through twice. And I came across her when I was doing research. And in particular, there was an essay she wrote in which she talked about her hopes and dreams for the future in 1947. And most of what she hoped for had come to pass by the time I interviewed her in 1989. If she were still alive, I'd call her up and she had a black rotary phone in her kitchen. So I visited with her at her cottage in uh, Burbank, California when I interviewed her. I would say, Edith, can you believe that 
everything you hoped for has come to pass, and look at all of these other things. The tragedy, though, for Edith was that when she was 92, she had to move into a nursing facility, and she felt compelled to go back into the closet because she was afraid that the people who worked there wouldn't care for her properly if she if they knew she was gay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Is that a theme that comes up where people are going back in the closet, like anything? Well, there, there were... There are people still in the closet when I, there were three people in the original book who asked me not to use their real names. Uh, Edith Ide was one of them. Uh, she's Lisa Ben in the book. Uh, Wendell Sayers, uh, 86-year-old uh, African-American man, the one who was sent to the Mayo Clinic when he was 16. He asked me to use um, a pseudonym for him. Um, and there was a school teacher who also asked me to use a pseudonym. So yes, I mean, in my own experience of growing up, I was in and out of the closet uh, through my, my late teens into my early 20s. Because of, of of work, principally, and also because of my terror of being gay. Mm. Um, but I didn't. But the last job that I had, where I had to go back into the closet, was in 1984, working for a politician here in New York City, as his assistant press secretary. And um, I, I lasted six weeks. I couldn't stand being in the closet again. I hadn't <laughs> been in the closet in in several years, and I just thought I can't do this. <laughs> And has has researching queer history, has that helped your, because you said earlier about feeling terrified of being gay when you were younger. So what was it, what happened when you wanted to turn that internalised homophobia into researching queer history? It really, it did help me a lot. You know, it took me a long time to feel that this work was equivalent to mainstream history, mainstream journalism. But I was so inspired by so many of the people I met who were working to make the world we have now mm. before I was born. And they did it at a time when it was so incredibly dangerous, when there was no reason to believe that the world would ever accept people like us. Yeah. So I often think of my, my, I think of them now as my buddies, even though most of them are gone, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen, who were the, the happy warriors of the movement. Um, who helped get homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses here in the U.S. in 1973, and who organized some of the first marches in front of the White House in 1965. Mm. Um, and Morty Manford, who with his mom co-founded an organization for parents of gay people in 1973. So I have all of these people in my head. And now, especially since they're they're almost all gone, I feel this enormous responsibility uh, to, to share their stories, which I get to do through the Making Gay History podcast. Who do you wish you'd have interviewed? Is, who was it? Like, it's, it, can you give me names? Oh, 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 my goodness. Those are, uh, there are people from history I would have loved to have interviewed. Alan Turing, for example. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things about being 64 is that names flee from your head. Uh, but, ah, it's come back. Oscar Wilde. Oh, there were just so many people. So there was a, a, a photographer, a famous photographer in New York, um, a woman photographer pioneering named Alice Austin. In the late 19th century through the early 20th, she lived in a wonderful cottage on Staten Island, which is one of the boroughs of New York City. Uh, it's a cottage that overlooks New York Harbor, and the cottage is now a museum. It's the Alice Austin House Museum. And she took pictures of herself and her lover with her and her friends dressed in male drag, and I wish I could go back and interview her. Oh, yeah. To find out what life was like for her in the 19th century, how she came to take those photographs. 
Um, and that is, it's, it's a place that, that people from, from out of town never visit because they don't really know, know about it. But you can take the Staten Island Ferry from lower Manhattan and go visit the museum. This is brilliant. We've had such a fun month talking to people who are archivists and who work in queer history and where they found pieces and logbooks and oh, all sorts. Uh, let me tell you one one little quick story about finding something. Yes. So, so for our coming of age during the AIDS crisis season, I wanted to find the social worker who gave me and my then partner our test results in 1988 at the New York City Health Department Clinic on 28th and 9th Avenue. At the time when they gave you a test, you got a card with a number on it because they didn't take your name because it was so dangerous for people to know that you were HIV positive because of the possibility of discrimination. It's a crazy time. Mm. The social worker wrote her name on the card, Salve, S-O-L-V-E-I-G. I didn't know if it was her first name or her last name. So how do you find somebody like that yeah. from 1988? So I did a crowdsourcing thing through Twitter. And lo and behold, someone found her in it, quoted in an article from, from 1988 or 89, uh, where she talked about uh, her work at the New York City Health Clinic. And we were able to trace her, because then we had the yeah. full name. And we were able, my genealogist and researcher were able to track down possible contact information. Long story short, I got her, uh, what turned out to be her cell number. I reached her in her car in Miami, Florida, where she had just moved. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to her was because after she gave me my test results and I was just, I, I was stunned that I was negative. Um, I went out to the lobby and my partner had been given his results in another room because we weren't allowed to be told at the same time. And we didn't know what each other's results were. So we're standing in the lobby. There are all these uh, aqua plastic blue chairs. There are probably 50 people sitting there. And we're just standing there looking at each other. And we start giggling and realize we're both negative. But my social worker had come up behind me and she said, can you come with me? And, and my then partner said, well, why? And I said, I don't know why. She just wants us to go with her. Let's do what she wants. So she leads us down a hallway trying to find an empty office. There were none. We get to the end of the hallway and she takes both our hands and she said, all day long, I deliver the most terrible news to people. And I just want to share in a moment of happiness with you. Oh, dang. Yeah. And that was the last time I had talked to her. And then I got to interview her all these years later. Do you... Do you do your personal history in the pop? Because you're part of history. You're part of making gay history now. Like all these stories. Do you? In two of the seasons, the coming of age during the 1980s and coming of age during the 1970s, those are memoir-esque, set against the movement. So my story is threaded throughout in both of those seasons. Yeah. Yeah, obviously the AIDS crisis, that was, that was my coming of age. Coming of age in the 70s, it was from age 12 to 20. So it was a little, uh, age 12 to 22. So it was, uh, there's not as much of me in it. Uh, but yeah, it turns out that, <laughs> that I've lived long enough that I'm a historical figure myself. <laughs> Congratulations, Eric. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to have lived so long. I'm just shocked. I'm just shocked. <laughs> who, are some of the, who are some of those figures who you've interviewed who are on Making Gay History? Who are some of those that are you feel that are underrated, that more people should know today? You can't take all of them. <laughs> almost, all, <laughs> almost all of them. Um, 
<laughs> one in particular, one in particular, and this affects people all over the world. So the Stonewall Uprising happened on June 28th, 1969, when police raided a gay bar in New York City. It led to a, a, a several days of unrest in New York City in Greenwich Village. People think that that's when the gay rights movement was born. Like, you know, one event, it all happens. Mm. I always say that the, that the, um, it's the organizers who will inherit the earth because there was already an existing infrastructure of, a, of what was called the homophile movement um, beginning in 1950 in the U.S. So there were between 40 and 60 organizations by 1969. So immediately after the Stonewall Uprising, there were meetings held that were sponsored by the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society. Those were organizations founded in the 1950s. Mm. And one of the key leaders, the key organizers of the post-Stonewall period was a guy named Craig Rodwell. Craig led the organizing for the 1970 Christopher Street Liberation Day March, which was the first, along with Chicago and LA and San Francisco, the first of the Pride Marches. But it wasn't just that one march. Um, this, this long history to this, so I'll be very brief about it, though. Craig asked the 20 organizations that had voted to have this march to then have marches in their cities and to do them every year thereafter mm -hmm. to mark the Stonewall Uprising. So he branded Stonewall. He figured out how to secure the uprising uh, in history, but he didn't want the the march called the Stonewall March because it was a gay bar owned by the mafia. Mm. So he called the march the Christopher Street Liberation Day March because most of the conflict in 1969 took place in the streets of Greenwich Village, and the principal street that ran in front of the Stonewall Inn was Christopher Street. So I've just actually launched a project in Christopher Park, the park directly across from the Stonewall Inn. It's an audio, um, we call it an audio activation. <laughs> If you come, if you come to New York and go to Christopher Park, you'll see little round blue signs. One of them says, "Hear Christopher Park talk about Stonewall." And we have Broadway actor Jay Harrison G, who just won a won a Tony, one of the first non-binary people to win a Tony ever for Some Like It Hot. Jay Harrison G, as Christopher Park, the character, tells the story of the Stonewall Uprising. So the sign has a little QR code. You scan the QR code, your phone rings, you answer the phone, and you hear Jay K Christopher G say, hi, I'm Christopher Park. <laughs> I'm talking Park. You know, I bet you want to know about the Stonewall Uprising. So in six minutes, Christopher Park tells the story of the Stonewall Uprising. Oh. So we have this, we, we just launched this last week. Um, Stonewall is one of the most misunderstood events um, because it's, it, it's so much myth is tied to it. Mm. And one of the biggest myths is that the movement began in 69 with Stonewall um, and that somehow magically everything flowed from there. But Craig Yeah, it's Rock like one minute it was Stonewall and now it's Pride Parades like, and there's nothing in between. Right, 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 right. And it was Craig Rodwell who was the genius behind this. Um, and the genius before him, I'd say, were uh, uh, Frank Kameny, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoos and the three of them who organized the first marches in front of the White House in 1965. We, I could talk to you about this all day, but unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you now, I'm going to ask you for three of your favorite interviews for people who want to come to Making Gay History. Yes. What are the top three that you would recommend for them to listen to? Edith Ide, um, Wendell Sayers, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen, and I'm giving you a fourth. Go for it. Um, Jean, Jean Manford and Morty Manford, her son. So those four, Jean and Morty Manford, they're done together. Um, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen, 
uh, Frank Kameny. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Edith Ide and uh, Wendell Sayers. I know we spoke about the other two, but they, who, do, who do the new ones speak about? What do they? Uh, so, so Gene and Morty Manford were co-founders of, of Parents of Gays, which became PFLAG, which is, an, which is a, an organization for gay parents that is now working very hard for the rights of trans kids. Um, they have 400 chapters across the U.S. So that's Gene and Morty Manford who co-founded Mother and Son. They were amazing. Mm. Um, and I give you Wendell Sayers and, oh, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen. Uh, and, um, oh, God, uh, and Edith Hyde. So we talked about So Edith wrote the first newsletter for lesbians in 1947. Wendell Sayers went to the 1959 Convention of the Mattachine Society in Denver, and he has this incredible story about being sent to be diagnosed as a homosexual at age, 19, uh, age 16 in 1919. Um, and then Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen, who helped get uh, homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses here in the U.S., I just, I love all of them and you'll laugh, you'll cry. It's uh, we joke that our brand is crying on the subway. <laughs> I was crying this morning, just listen, just like listening to the first episode. I was absolutely, in that, not even the first episode, uh, the introduction episode. I absolutely, <laughs> just the trailer. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be bawling. But, oh, thank you for listening. Thank oh, you. Thank no, you. I really thank appreciate you that. Thank you so much for taking such great care of capturing people's voices. So that I think it's so important. So yeah, I really hope that we'll get more people listening. If people want to find you, where can they find more about Making Gay History? So you can find our podcast episodes wherever you get your podcasts, but we also have a fully fledged website. You can listen there as well at makinggayhistory.com. And we have lots of resources for each episode, um, all kinds of links. And we also have full transcripts, uh, especially for people who are hearing impaired. Brilliant. I've got one last question. What do you think, which prize do you think is better, New York or London? Oh, London. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because it's, in, because it's in London. I love London. <laughs> London's one of my favorite cities in the world. You know, pride, we, have two, we have two pride marches here in New York. Oh, uh, wow. We have the, the regular one with all the floats and all the commercial stuff. And then we have a protest march called the Queer Liberation March. Um, on the same weekend, I go to the Queer Liberation March. Nice. So I, I really think that this is a moment when we need protest marches, not just a celebration. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh. So also people can find us on Twitter at Making Gay History. They can find us on Instagram at Making Gay History Podcast, also on Facebook, um, but not on TikTok because I just, uh, it's just, it would make my head explode. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right, Eric. You've got enough on your plate. We'll let you off TikTok. That's fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining us, Eric Marcus. Great, 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 great. I have once again delved into my fun bags because last week I asked you for your stories of kinky finds. Did you find something you shouldn't have under the bed? What was lurking in that locked drawer? Well, Lucy on my Instagram stories, she said, I'm not sure if it counts, but my dog found a toy in the woods and I am certain it's a sex toy. Plastic, purple, and ribbed for her pleasure. Oh, I think I know the one. <laughs> I've seen so many of these crop up on Facebook and Twitter. So many dog toys that look like they could have a uh, very different purpose. 
Bonnie on Twitter says, I'm constantly rooting around junk shops and car boots for kinky letters and postcards. <gasps> Bonnie, that is living my dream life. Yes. She said that my best find has been a postcard from a soldier in 1942 asking his girlfriend to send him something of the pleasurable persuasion. Oh, I've no idea if she did or not, but I definitely send my soldier boy a tip pick. Oh. Oh, if he asked me like that, I would. Yes. Something of the pleasurable persuasion. What a way of putting it. Where's that language gone? Uh, Liam, he wrote and said, my wife drunkenly confessed she found my dad's vintage porn when we were clearing his place out after he died a few years ago. She was in fits of giggles, but wouldn't tell me the subject matter. Now I'm too afraid to ask. Ask. Oh my God. <gasps> Would you ask? Would you ask if someone knew what your parents were into? Could you? Should you? Oh, I don't know. But if she was in fits of giggles, then <laughs> what is it going to be? Oh my God. <sighs> Liam, if you can't ask your wife, I will. <laughs> oh, man. Next week, I want your orgasm stories. Yes. Have you got one you still remember? Is there one that got away? Maybe you had a ruined orgasm. Maybe you like giving ruined orgasms. Yeah, that's quite good. Edging, anything like that, you can tell me. It's M-I-R-I-K-A-N-E on Instagram. That's Miri Kane, where you can slide into my DMs or email smutdrop at metro.co.uk. I've been Miranda Kane. Smutdrop was produced by Pineapple Audio Production for metro.co.uk. If you are enjoying this weekly dollop of SEX Factor 50, please leave me a nice review and maybe I can stop doing terrible jokes like that in the meantime i'm gonna be back to prick up your ears next week and remember don't do anything i wouldn't do but if you do then please name it after me 